This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Master. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, they came, uh, and I don't know if they conquered because they were trading up and then they were trading down. They're still down. We're talking about some of the big bank names. Let's uh, get into this with our round table. Reed Dupree is portfolio manager at Menden Capital Advisors, $1.2 billion in assets under management based in Rochester, New York. They're a registered uh, investment advisor. Arnold Kakuda is our banking and credit analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, our in-house group of analysts, joining me in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York City. Arnold let me start with you. Um, break it down, because when I was listening to Bloomberg Radio this morning, I thought, okay, this is going to be a pretty positive day for the bank stocks, and not so much. What happened? First of all, let's break down the quarters. Were they good? Uh, well, I, I guess um, maybe taking the weather into account today. Uh, you know, I, I came in; it's like eighty degrees now. Um, I'm pretty stoked. Maybe you know, <laughs> if, if I was expecting, you know, came in in a bathing suit, yeah, maybe not warm enough. So maybe it was that kind of you know setting the uh, expectations versus the actual. Um, maybe the expectation was a little too high compared to what the banks actually reported. And so kind of looking into it, though, um, you know, the theme that emerges is that fixed income yeah. uh, was a little bit, you know, lighter than expected. And, um, you know, this is this is the quarter for fixed income. The first quarter is uh, when we see a seasonal uptick. Um, so if they don't deliver now? Yeah, it's, it's a little bit harder down the line. And, and you know, all of that, like throughout most of last year, we heard, oh, low volatility, that's really affecting trading revenues. And then finally, in the beginning of this year, we're like, you know, we, we were hearing, hey, volatility is up. And so maybe expectations might have run ahead of itself. Right. And, and people were expecting something gangbuster. Uh, and, and I think the commentary that we heard is that uh, March started to really slow down. So, hmm. you, know, you know, JP Morgan and uh, Citigroup, thick a little bit lower than expected. Reed, how do you read? Uh, no pun intended. Sorry about that. Uh, but how do you see the results? Uh, I think that's right. I think they, um, the thick businesses both came in a little bit lighter. I think JP Morgan was roughly flat. I think Citigroup was down about 7 or 8%. Uh, you know, the equity trading businesses did pick up some. Um, they were both up in the, you know, over 20%. I think they benefited from the volatility. And I think some of the, the prime services and businesses like that picked up. But FIC is certainly larger. And I think we saw some extreme volatility in Q1, which was a bit tougher for them. Reed, I mean, has it changed? Um, you know, you guys are into the financials. I know you often tend to pick up a lot of the regional players. Um, but, I mean, when you look at some of these big banks as well, any anything today that kind of changed your thinking about them, your uh, financial thesis and your investment thesis about them? I, I, would, I would say no. I think the um, that, that's right. We tend to play a little bit in the smaller, smaller financials, and I'll go into why. I, I think today, uh, to the point earlier, they did they – did, a lot of them came within line of expectations. Expectations had gotten a little bit full. Um, I think some of the core trends at a J.P. Morgan in terms of growth and loans and deposits was still still decent. Margins were okay. I think when you look at some of the bigger regional banks, PNC and Wells, um, maybe First Horizon, the loan growth just wasn't as as robust. I think as people would have liked. Um, but that's one of the the things that we like about our strategy is we tend to we tend to favor smaller banks. We tend to favor banks that can can grow in a lot of different environments, uh, maybe a little bit targeted towards some more favorable geographies like Texas and Tennessee, which are right. showing good growth now and, and have um, 
obviously benefit more from some of the tax changes from being low-tax states. And I think, you know, we try to find management teams that understand their core markets and, and can can grow through different environments with some pretty, you know, niche and focused strategies. And so um, sometimes when we see the big banks and the super regionals not, not put up the growth numbers that, that maybe were expected, we think that can play positively for some of the smaller banks that they're competing against. So, Arnold, what does this maybe portend for some of the other big banks that have yet to report? Because, I mean, they're never apples to apples with these guys, right? Some of them have more emphasis on different um, aspects of the financial business and financial community. But does this say anything about those that have yet to report? Like, when does Goldman report? Uh, I think they're uh, Tuesday or Wednesday. Yeah. But uh, I mean, if you're looking at the you know big bank stocks today, um, you know everybody's down. But the, the least down are, are the kind of Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs's. And that kind of speaks to, you know, they're, they're more exposed to the equity side of the business which, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that, that did pretty well today. So, uh, And then in terms of uh, fixed income, you know, Bank of America, um, they're more concentrated in credit, which uh, didn't really do that well this quarter. You know, the, um, banks, the, the Citigroup and J.P. Morgan have kind of cited credit and, and spread trading, uh, sorry, spread trading and um, rates as kind of the weaker areas, and Bank of America is more exposed to credit. So. All right, and we're going to hear from Bank of America on Monday, and as you rightfully said, uh, Goldman is on um, Tuesday. You know, I am also curious, um, Arnold, as you look at uh, these results, what does it tell you, if anything, about um, kind of what's going on more broadly in terms of the marketplace and the economy? Well, um, I think, you know, you know, let's step back and kind of look at the, the overall earnings. But, you know, J.P. Morgan, they earned $8 billion. <laughs> it's nothing <laughs> to sneeze income, you know. at. Uh, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, both about $5 billion. So, yeah. hey, you know, this this is, um, you know, as a credit guy looking at, you know, kind of how much, uh, you know, earnings these guys can generate, that, you know, this is great. You know, I, I think we're looking at something pretty good. Um, and then in terms of, you know, loan quality, um, that that's looking pretty good too, you know. And, um, you know, uh, you know, Wells Fargo pointed out um, they had a reserve release, about $500 million, And basically they took that in, in 3Q of last year basically saying, hey, you know, after the hurricanes, mm-hmm. you know, we're not really sure how people are going to react. So, you know, we're going to take a charge over there. But then not, now looking back, they said, hey, you know, things are going to look, you know, looking better than expected. So that you know, they took that back into earnings. So interesting. Hey, Arnold, just got about. I'm um, forgive me. Read. Forgive me. We've got about 30 seconds left here. Um, do you still? You guys like the financials for the rest of the year? You think it, the environment will be still kind of supportive? Just quickly. Yes. No. I think. I think uh, we we certainly do. We think again, growth is still strong. Um, benefit of the taxes coming down is going to continue to help the earnings. Credit quality was 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 very benign, and again, we think we'll see some pretty good differentiation as we start to get into earnings season around, you know, again, some of the smaller banks, you know, shining and outperforming while, you know, right. some of the bigger banks um, did well, but were held down by some of the capital markets businesses and things like that. All right. Have a great weekend. Hey, listen, uh, J.P. Morgan down about 3% as we speak, 2.3% lower on Citigroup. Uh, Reed Dupree, uh, Portfolio Manager at Menden Capital Advisors, $1.2 billion in assets under management from Rochester. Arnold Kakuda, Banking and Credit Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Thank you. Uh, 
Asia, yeah, everybody's alert because it seems like things may be changing from at least the U.S. perspective when it comes to trade policy. President Trump 2.0, that's what I'm calling it when it comes to trade. The president ordering his team to take another look at TPP. Uh, and the clock, of course, continuing to uh, run on NAFTA negotiations, maybe running out. Caitlin Weber is government analyst on U.S. trade policy for Bloomberg Intelligence, our in-house group of analysts. Normally, she's based in Washington. She's abnormal today because she came to our New York studio. <laughs> You chose a good day, although it's lovely in Washington, D.C., too. Um, okay, so trade policy. You have to make sense out of this, and you watch it. Let's do T, um, TPP, uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership. The president now saying, let's take another look at it. That's a big deal. It's a big deal, and it's a really hard one to make sense of. This is a deal that, as a candidate, he called the worst trade deal in history. And now... He's, he's willing to take another look. And what's interesting, Kathleen Hayes, or Kathleen Hayes, said, you know, this is someone, President Trump as a private individual, has always kind of talked against trade. So for him to now say, let's take a look at it. What's going on? He's always been skeptical of these large deals. He's preferred bilateral deals. And now potentially he wants to relook at this deal that would include 11 other countries. I think what's really going on here is this is more about China than this is about the TPP. Um, the, Afraid of China taking over? The TPP would be a really effective counterweight to China in the Asia-Pacific region. When the U.S. was part of the deal, it represented 40% of GDP. And so, and China was you know, really no big fan of the U.S. being in the TPP. They didn't want the U.S. and these other countries to sort of set the ground rules for trade in the Asia-Pacific region. So I, I think there's a couple of things going on here. I think... Um, it's sort of part of this sort of uh, this this escalation with with China these these other tensions that are going on over tariffs. I also think that in some ways it's um, it's a response to um, these traditional Republican groups, farmers, and the Chamber of Commerce, who really came out very strongly against these these threatened tariffs over the past couple of weeks. Trump Trump I think is trying to signal, look, I'm not trying to completely pull out of the global trading system. I'm I'm open. I'm open to right. to to negotiating and being part of these larger deals. And aside here, but it's related, Peter Coy, our economics editor at Bloomberg Businessweek, has a really fascinating story in the magazine this week and and, and also at businessweek.com, but it talks about the law of unintended consequences when it comes to trade policy. It's not so clear that you put, you know, tariffs on one country and that they only get hurt because everything is so interconnected, whether it's through the supply chain or, you know, you hurt somebody, but then they go somewhere. Like, it's just not black and white. There's a lot of gray and you really need to understand it. Um, are people concerned, um, their concerns about China um, warranted when it comes to trade, that the U.S. needs to be involved when China's involved oh, in trade talks? Absolutely. Um, I mean, U.S. businesses have been complaining about China's unfair trade practices, these forced technology transfers, um, you know, really sort of unfair regulatory um, processes for, for years. And actually, President, former President Obama got a lot of flack for not being sort of strong enough. So there are definitely legitimate complaints about the environment for, for U.S. companies to do business there. Now, now on TPP, uh, ministers from other countries, right, have they already said we're not going to rework things or where are we? <laughs> so the the 11 other countries that, that were left, they moved on. They actually signed a, a, another deal called the CPTPP um, <laughs> that last year that actually dropped t over 20 provisions that the U.S. wanted that were beneficial to 
the huge U.S. economy, yeah. things about IP rights. And those countries are in the process of ratifying those in, in their own parliaments now. So they've moved on. They're, the the prospect of, of Trump getting a deal that he would consider a better deal for the U.S., it would have he would have to get those 20 provisions back and then get some other provisions around currency or, or around potentially Is longer. that not likely? Very unlikely. Very unlikely. Um, so if the U.S. wants to be part of it, they've got to accept it as it's been ratified or agreed upon when the U.S. left the table. That's their best shot. And also, if you look at the political... Still count, better to be involved than not? Uh, I, U.S. businesses would certainly certainly say so, yeah. Um, the, it's unlikely, though, looking at the political calendar in the U.S., that there's enough time for, for Congress, even if he, if, if he just joined as is today, that there would be enough time for Congress to approve the deal. And if Democrats take over the House next year, mm. Democrats are much more skeptical of the TPP. That would become even harder. They're not going to give Trump a big win on something like that. Okay. 40 seconds, NAFTA. What round are we in? Seven, eight? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're sort of between seven and eight. Um, there is... We started that out this week with with uh, reporting that potentially we would get um, sort of a rough draft of the deal by this weekend, and potentially a full deal by um, the beginning of May. Um, I think that if if that happens, what the U.S. is going to have to really compromise on some tough issues that it hasn't been willing to so far. So these are things surrounding mostly automotive content rules. They wanted to really make those much stricter. In order for that, for Mexico and Canada to agree to that, they're going to have to step that back considerably. Stay tuned, huh? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Nice to have you here. Thank you. In New Thank York. you for having me. Yeah, wonderful. Thanks. As always, Caitlin Weber. She's government analyst at US, uh, of U.S. Trade Policy at Bloomberg Intelligence, our in-house group of analysts, as I said, based in Washington, but in our New York studio. It's a thin line between love and hate. Don't think you can keep breaking your woman's heart. So we love it. We love it not. We love it. We love it not. You get the gist. Talking about Tesla's stock, most hated and most loved. I got to tell you, though, I love this story. It's among our most read on the Bloomberg on this Friday. David Welch is Detroit Bureau Chief at Bloomberg News, joining us right now uh, from our blue, uh, from our Detroit Bureau. And, you know, it's so true, David. Um, I have people who come on and they defend Tesla uh, vigorously. And then I have some who come on and they're just either shorting it or just, you know, like the guy, but uh, like the ideas, but don't think it's a good and sustainable company. Talk to us about this story. Yeah, so this is like uh, Yankees versus Red Sox, or if you uh, <laughs> you live in the UK, Celtic versus Rangers. Um, it, it's just a uh, two very divergent schools. Uh, <laughs> on, on one side, you have the fanboys are the lovers. They not only love the cars, but they 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 have this uh, this affinity for Elon and his vision. And from an investment standpoint, they're not buying stock just because they like his cars. His cars are cool. If that were the case, they would have bought uh, uh, Ferrari shares. It's really, they see a future of clean electric cars that drive themselves. And they think that Tesla has the technology and the talent and Elon's vision to get there first and to make a lot of money eventually. And they're willing to wait through a lot of cash burn, a lot of losses, and a lot of missed financial and production targets to get to that payday. On the other side are the uh, the shorts, the bears. They they see a company that's burning cash has made money just once, uh, and it's 
one quarterly profit in its history, and uh, they don't see how they're going to make money anytime soon. And they figure, yeah, somebody is going to get to that vision of clean, electric, self-driving cars, but it's not going to be Tesla because they'll run out of money and run out of investor patience first. Well, talk, talk, you know, David, talk about the cash burn. You point out Tesla's got more than $10 billion in, dollar, $10 billion in debt. They're, what's their cash burn? I mean, they're not making any money on these cars. Give us some of the numbers. Yeah, so uh, they're expected uh, in the next quarter alone to burn, uh, what I think about a billion, a little, actually more than a billion dollars. For the last four quarters, they've been running in a, uh, let's call it negative free cash flow of an eight or nine hundred million dollar range. And a lot of that is getting the Model 3 up to speed. And the big question for Tesla is once that vehicle gets up to something resembling more full production, will they start to actually bring cash in the door instead of just torching it every quarter? Will they ever get on their own two feet? And, you know, when you're burning close to a billion dollars a quarter, it's kind of tough for particularly the bears on the stock to see that. Now, Look, developing a new car costs a lot of money, and right. it takes a lot of time. That's what makes Tesla a truly unique animal here, is that a lot of the startups that get funded by venture cap, these are they're software companies, right? And you can get software to market and beta test form in six months, So, uh, and, and then you, you know, it takes you another six to 12 months to market it, and then you start putting out upgrades. But your, your road to profitability is much shorter because the development cycle is much shorter. We're talking about cars here that take years to develop right. and billions to develop, so it does require more patience. And that's the bear case is, hey, everybody just wait. Um, you know, so the, the, uh, the issue really is when do they stand on their own two feet. This other issue, though, is the, the bears, or, rather, or the bulls, rather, they think that Tesla doesn't necessarily need to stand on their own two feet anytime soon. They just need to kind of get close to get enough credibility to keep raising well, more money to develop all these cars. What's fascinating to me, David, is if we go back, I don't even know when kind of the tipping point was with this, where we would talk about electric vehicles um, and kind of, I felt like they were still a long ways off and they were, you know, a few people who were just really into the environment and they bought a Prius. And I feel like Tesla came on, on you know, the, the market or came into the market and he changed it. And I feel like he's really pushed all the other automakers to ump the ante when it comes to EVs. And I mean, just this week, I think I read something about Mercedes looking to do some kind of car to compete with the Tesla. Um, so I do feel like he's really kind of pushing everybody to move forward. There's no question. Look, the electric cars we've seen up until Tesla came around were things like Nissan Leaf, the Chevy Bolt, which was actually a plug-in hybrid first, uh, and then eventually the Chevy Bolt. These are small hatchbacks that are basically done to meet regulations in California and for the car companies to at least get batteries and electric motors on the road and kind of experiment with them. But they're mostly done for regulations. What do Americans hate? They hate compact cars and they hate hatchbacks. (laughs) So (laughs) that's what Nissan and General Motors put out. What Elon did was he started off with a Roadster just to get it out there, which was pretty cool and it got attention from the sports car geeks. But the Model S was a big sedan. It looks really good. It's very roomy. It was a cool car. And what ended up happening is that people bought the Model S not just because it was an electric car. They weren't just the clean green folks who wanted to do the right thing for clean it's air. It's a cool and, car. 
Yeah, it was a cool car. It's sort of like BMW makes great engines, and people don't buy it just for that engine, but it's an essential part of the DNA of the brand and right. an essential part of how the car drives. And for Tesla, the fact that it's electric was essential to the DNA and the brand, but it wasn't all that the brand was. There's a 17-inch touchscreen in the car. There's a sleek design. And then there's this crazy entrepreneur genius behind it, and that's what everybody fell in love with, with that whole picture. So, hey, listen, listen, just got about 30 seconds here. The other thing I want to throw on this is that Elon Elon Musk actually came out and said Tesla is going to be profitable and there's going to be cash flow in the third quarter and fourth quarter. Uh, so obviously no need to raise money. He put this out on Twitter on The Economist's uh, story on the on the company. 20 seconds here. If so, that's uh, that would be a pretty, pretty big positive. Just quickly. It would be a huge positive, yes, but it's not so obvious because he misses targets all the time. <laughs> that's what yes. he does. We've been good about tracking that as well. Um, David, fun story, good story. Uh, and I'll put it out at uh, Carol Masser on Twitter. And everybody can also check it out on Bloomberg.com or go to at David Welch, BN. Get it directly. David Welch, thank you so much. He's our Detroit Bureau Chief. Bloomberg News from our Bureau in Detroit. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. Now I look at all these photographs. All everybody. Facebook may be finding its future, perhaps, uh, thanks to Instagram. It's the global cover story of Bloomberg Business Week this week. Sarah Fryer is our technology reporter. She has had quite a week covering Facebook. Mark Zuckerberg up on Capitol Hill. She wrote this amazing cover story uh, about Facebook and Instagram. First of all, does everybody realize that Instagram is owned by Facebook? Actually, the majority of consumers don't. And in what's been really interesting about the past couple weeks with people using the hashtag delete Facebook campaign and, and declaring that they won't ever use Facebook again, they're still using Instagram. And in some cases, they are uh, making that announcement on Instagram. It's really been kind of interesting to see. To see that happen. And it speaks to your story, right? That you say that Facebook and Instagram have kind of um, operated separately, independently to some extent. When it's convenient for Instagram and Facebook to be linked, uh, it is. In, in advertising discussions, in growth discussions, obviously Instagram wants to lean on Facebook to get bigger, to get more important. But then when it comes to branding in the consumer's minds, Scrutiny from lawmakers, Instagram uh, is is sort of considered separate and kept separate uh, in people's minds. And, and that that underscores kind of a struggle at the company to decide how much to do together, to do separately. Mm. Uh, and there's so many things that are different about Instagram's very functionality compared to Facebook. How so, Sarah? Well, Facebook grew to prominence by just building whatever people wanted in order to grow, like if there was something that would cause you to share more, spend more time on Facebook, yeah. Facebook built it. Instagram has had a very different strategy. Whereas, you know, Facebook's early motto was was uh, move fast and break things. Instagram's early motto could have been don't ruin it. They, they, they hesitated to add a lot of things that could have made their growth happen a lot faster. In particular, the share button. Stuff doesn't go viral on Instagram. Mm -hmm. You can't even really share links on Instagram. It's it's designed so that everything that people post is a reflection of their interests or what they created themselves. And they and Instagram wants to keep it that way. Absolutely. It's a it's a differentiating factor. Instagram in its own though has become quite a powerful company. 
they're almost at a billion users, which is so rare for any social media property to get to that size. And they would be one of the most influential companies in Silicon Valley if they weren't owned by an even more influential <laughs> one. So it kind of helps them that they can fly under the radar and just be seen as the place for latte art and travel inspiration and celebrity selfies and in not get caught up in our discussions about Facebook, not because they don't have any unsavory content. They certainly have misinformation, memes pushed out of Russia. You know, they have that stuff. It's just not as bad as Facebook, and therefore we don't talk about it. So, you know, your story kind of looks into and digs into, you know, is maybe Instagram the future for Facebook? Is it? Like, what do, what do the folks that you talk to say about this? Well, internally at Facebook, they see Instagram as one and the same as Facebook. So if you use Instagram, you are still giving the Facebook machine information that the, that can be used to target you later with advertising on, on any Facebook property. And so um, if people decide to quit Facebook and use Instagram instead... Facebook doesn't care. It's all the same to them. It's all it's all good basically because you're feeding this engine. It even works. It even works that way for like employees. If you were an employee of Facebook and you decide you want to go work at Instagram, there's no love lost. It's all considered part of the same engine for advertising and helping people connect with each other. And Facebook likes it, right? Because the Instagram user tends to be a younger user, right? So it's a whole set of... Right, and Facebook is at this point right now. It's very interesting. They have connected more than half of the world's internet-connected population on Facebook. And so they're going to hit some walls in their growth. And they already they have, right? The way, if you look at, if, yes, and if you look at Facebook's valuation, it's sort of based on this endless growth trajectory. But there's a limited number of people in the world. And so that's why Facebook needs Instagram, not just Instagram, but WhatsApp and Messenger, all these other properties that they can build into Facebook-sized businesses or bigger. Since you were all Facebook this week and you had a front row seat there up on Capitol Hill, we just have about 40 seconds left here. Facebook, in terms of their business model, do you foresee that it's going to change going forward? One of the most interesting questions that I saw on the Hill was about whether there is any private sector alternative to Facebook. And Zuckerberg said that, you know, on average, people use eight apps to connect with their friends and family, including text messaging and email. He did not mention how many of those apps are owned by Facebook. And Lindsey Graham pushed harder and said, well, why did you acquire Instagram? And Zuckerberg said, well, they're really good app developers. <laughs> that is clearly not the only reason why Facebook acquired Instagram. And we'll, we'll see if that monopoly discussion gets a little clearer down the line. There will be a lot more, no doubt about it. Um, great reporting this week. Great story, great cover story. I highly recommend that everybody uh, check it out at uh, businessweek.com, bloomberg.com, or just pick up the magazine on the newsstands. Sarah Fryer. Thank you so much. Technology reporter at Bloomberg News. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
All right, everybody, it's time for the drive to the close. The Rational Dynamic Brands Fund beating most of its peers this year at more than 3%. Eric Clark is Portfolio Manager at AccuVest Global Advisors, joining us on the phone from San Francisco. Eric, nice to have you here on this Friday. Uh, this market hey, envi- hey, when you look at this market environment, um, what do you see? <laughs> well, uh, listening to your former guest, with the ultra short-term debt and all the money that's gone into that category, there is literally the opposite of what happened in late January when everybody thought that nothing bad could happen. Earnings were going to the moon. The economy was going to accelerate. Interest rates were rising because of it. So we have, we have unwound a lot of that, that euphoric complacent sentiment. And we're pretty much in the opposite part of that. Now, so it, it probably wasn't smart to be too uh, too overly uh, bullish in January, and it's it's our opinion that uh, from a contrarian bullish perspective, people are way too pessimistic currently. And your brand is based on just a, what about twenty five to fifty stocks, right? And it all has to do with kind of brand awareness. Um, and you know, what are the factors that go into kind of this this index and this strategy specifically? Yeah, I mean, we the the goal is to track the you know in, in the U.S. it's twelve trillion around the world it's thirty or forty trillion so it's a pretty predictable theme of consumer spending people buying things they want and things they need and when you make the the purchase decision you generally go with the brand that you like and whose products you uh, you love and uh, so so the focus is track the consumer spending theme because it's important it's predictable and do it in a way through the most uh, the most relevant and powerful brands that have good pricing power and good competitive moats. And, uh, and particularly pricing power is important now because of as we see that wage growth build, you want to make sure that companies can push on uh, you know, some of those, those prices you know, if they get some pressure from the wage side. And a bunch of your names, I mean, there are certainly well-known household names, Amazon.com, you've got Apple uh, in your portfolio, you've got Alphabet, of course, Google, um, parent there, um, you've got Walt Disney, and you've got Ferrari, which I'm surprised to see is up about 17% this year, at least I'm looking at, I think, the ADRs here. Ferrari's been been pretty much the only auto company around the world that's actually doing well. I mean, you know, they're, they don't... Uh, Let's say that Ferrari buyers tend to be pretty recession-proof, and uh, they clearly have pricing power. You know, the, the minimum entry price for a Ferrari is, you know, a quarter of a million dollars. So they are aspiration. it's an aspirational brand with an aspirational vehicle, and, and they're expanding. I mean, they're creating an SUV. They're working on, you know, uh, kind of a, a, a Tesla competitor. So there's a lot of demand around the world for that brand. It's probably one of the most powerful brands in the in the portfolio. So I find it interesting. Not cheap, but, yeah. it, but it's worth it. <laughs> it's not cheap. It's a forward-looking PE of about 32. Right. Hey, you know, right. among the FANG, the technology stocks, like I mentioned, you've got Amazon, you've got Apple, you've got uh, Alphabet, you've got, you know, obviously then Google. Um, you don't have Facebook. Not interested? No, we... No, I'm not. I, I, we sold Facebook. We had a great ride with Facebook, and, and, and I held it with a little bit of angst. We also sold Google, so we don't have Google anymore either. Ah, okay. um, I, I struggle with business models that, uh, that, sell, that, that don't sell a product, that, that have a product or a service that's free, because there's no free lunch. And, and we're finding that out now. You know, I, I've always struggled with something that's ad-based, because I, I think 
we're all so tired of being over-marketed to, whether it's commercials on TV. That's why Netflix is so popular with people. Um, I, I just don't love business models that don't sell products, that, that don't have good margins for those products and, and use ads in our information. So we just we, we clipped that. I, we sold Facebook at the end of last year and sold uh, Google uh, in uh, January, if memory serves me. So we love, still love Apple, even though the, our, our, uh, our, our ADD tweeter-in-chief keeps talking about Amazon and the post office and all this other nonsense. But uh, that's a great company with an economic mode. Consumers love it. And uh, we still love Apple. And uh, we don't even have Netflix anymore. We sold that one after the thing was up 70% year-to-date. And uh, I'm sure they'll have a good number this year, th- this quarter here on Monday after the close. But uh, eventually, when, when you finance your debt or your growth with debt, uh, eventually, if your business slows even for a quarter, uh, it's going to get harder to raise money. And they're, you know, they're $8 billion this year on content. It's not cheap. So we, uh, we took that gain and, and moved on to some other more growth names that are more at a reasonable price. Hey, when did you get out of Netflix? Because I'm just looking at the run-up. I mean, I'm sure you know it. 63% higher this year. When did you guys get out? We got out when it was up about 60, 65. So we timed it pretty good. We missed a little wow. bit of the peak. But, yeah. you know, in, in my opinion, when things go vertical, the risk profile changes and it's time to at right. least lighten up on things. And, and we just chose to, to just get out. Uh, and I love it. I love Netflix, but I, I would prefer to buy it cheaper. And maybe I'll get that opportunity this quarter, maybe, maybe next. But at some point, it's, you know, growth is going to slow and people are going to realize that's a big valuation with lots of debt and lots of uh, content costs with subgrowth that's flowing. Hey, someday. Eric, quickly, 30 seconds, Disney uh, in the news big time, you know, in terms of the Fox assets and Sky and all that good stuff. What's your premise here? Just quickly. We, we don't own Disney anymore. Oh, um, you don't? I, I, mean, I, I, I love Disney. So you've been, you've been, you've been selling we're, a lot. We're pretty active. We put, we're pretty active, and, yeah. and when things are fundamentally changing, we move on and find other places. We have a lot. We have two hundred good options. So I don't feel compelled to stick with things that fundamentally aren't working. All right, we'll have to have you come back and talk to us about some of your more recent buys because um, I think that our numbers were as of the uh, maybe first quarter. Hey, Eric, thank you, Eric Clark, portfolio manager at AccuVest Global Advisors, on the phone from San Francisco. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.